The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. So I think devices offer a really improved approach to neurologic problems and they don't need to be quote taken every day like a pill. So compliance is 100%. And up until now, we really haven't had many devices in the field, but I think going forward, we will. Today's guest is Bradford C. Burke, and he's two kinds of doctor. He's a medical doctor and a PhD. Dr. Burke is a distinguished university professor at the University of Rochester. He was recruited to Rochester in 1998 as chief of cardiology and later served as chairman of medicine and CEO at University of Rochester Medical Center. Dr. Burke stepped down in 2015 to found the University of Rochester Neuro Restoration Institute, which provides the highest quality multidisciplinary care to individuals who have suffered neurologic damage. Dr. Burke's current research focuses on the role of inflammation in spinal cord injury and stroke. He's published more than 300 journal articles, chapters, and books. Dr. Burke had a spinal cord injury from a bicycle accident in 2009, and he wrote a book that was published this year called Getting Your Brain and Body Back, Everything You Need to Know About Spinal Cord Injury, Stroke, or Traumatic Brain Injury. And had he just been an MD and a PhD and written a book to tell people with spinal cord injury and brain injury what they should do, I would never have contacted him to come on the show. But that he had lived the experience and understood the heartbreak, the indignities, emotional trauma, but also the acceptance and using the hard work of recovery to learn all kinds of things. And those are the things he's gonna share with us. I came away from this with thinking that the Dr. Burke is a cockeyed optimist. I don't know if he was before his injury, maybe he was, but where he takes this conversation shows us that he is an optimist and can give people with neurologic injuries optimism because he knows it from the medical side, yes, but also because he's lived it. Okay, got it. 
So I just wanted to let you know, and I think I've seen about four or five interviews with you, and it's remarkable. I don't think I've seen you or heard you say, um, once. Okay, that's unusual. I do stop to think along the way sometimes. That's great because I edit the audio, and usually what I'm editing out is, uh, well, wait, well, let me go back. I, so, um, it, and that's a nightmare. So if you uh, if you take your time and there's big gaps, I got a thing on my processing. It's called truncate silence, and it'll take all those gaps out. So Good. yeah, that uh, sounds great. If you need a break at any point, that's no problem either. Okay. Oh, yeah, I probably will just to do some drinking <laughs> of water. <laughs> oh, thanks for quantifying that. Well, I could have a drink too, but it's a little early. Now, where are you right now? The hub of the universe, Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati. It's good. We won the game. Oh, no. Have you lost the game in football? Since you lost this week, that's right. Well, Sailor the Bills lost too. So it's a sad day for both of us, I guess. Um, I don't think University of Cincinnati lost yet. And no, I, but the I, I'm Rose just, lost. Not, not, not just yet. And my daughter goes there. So if I got that wrong, right I'd get in trouble. That's good. Yeah. What else can I tell you? To, yeah. So any, any kind of break you need, we can cut that out and we get music behind it and all that stuff. You want to know something really strange that I discovered as I was looking up in my book under my resources for stroke and your book was in the resources for stroke. And somehow during the editing process, they took out all the references just for stroke. So spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury have all their references in it, but strokes missing everything, including yours. I liked your book. Thank you. It was easy to read and, uh, not too long, so it was good. Yeah, so you and I have, I think, probably the same intention when we wrote our book, which is to help people. I, I get kind of, um, I don't know what it is. I don't really like compliments about the book because, you know, oh, yeah, great. Thank you very much. But I, it's not for me. It's for other people. So I'm just hoping, I'm hoping it helps people. You too. All right. Thanks, Dr. Bradford Burke, for visiting Noggins and Neurons this evening. Thanks so much for coming on. It's a real pleasure, Peter. I want to mention that my co-host, Deb Battistella, is not here because she's a bit under the weather, and I wish her speedy recovery. Get well quick, Deb. I need you. All right. So your book is called Getting Your Brain and Body Back, Everything You Need to Know After Spinal Cord Injury, Stroke, or Traumatic Brain Injury. Can you talk a little bit about how you started and when you started and what the inspiration was for it? It's unusual, but I actually started writing the book while I was in the intensive care unit on the ventilator. There's not a lot you can do lying on your back with a ventilator. You can't talk. It's hard to hear because there's so much noise. So I started thinking about my experience. And I had an unusual perspective, I think, since I was a doctor, I'm a cardiologist by training. I was actually the chief executive officer of the medical center that I was in at the moment. So I had quite a good idea about the organization and the quality of care that my uh, hospital provided. And I am a scientist, so I knew a lot about research. I realized that even though I had actually taken care of spinal cord injury patients previously during my residency, I don't recall reading a book that was very straightforward about it. And I said, this could be a time for me to 
write a book. And the original title of the book was The Enlightenment of Dr. Burke, because within the first three days, I was enlightened almost every hour by things that I would not have expected to occur to me some good, some bad. And I felt it was important to make other people aware of how dramatically different it is to be on the other side of the doctor-patient relationship. I think I read somewhere you said it took about five years to write. Yes, five years. Over that arc of time, that story, you just mentioned that within the first two or three days, you were you know, realizing that the reality was much different from what you might have expected. Over the arc of that five years, did it radically change again and again and again? It changed after about year one. A good friend of mine went to the Harvard Medical School writer's course for medical professionals who wanted to write books. And there's a very good teacher there uh, named Silver, and she uh, agreed to let me give her a call and present my book idea to her. By that time, I'd researched the web long enough to realize that I needed a book proposal to be able to sell the book. So I gave her my proposal in three minutes. And she said, well, you've committed every sin there is in writing a book, and it's good that you're talking to me. She said, the biggest problem is your book is a mix of an autobiography, a self-help book, and a research treatise. And no one will know where to put that book on a bookshelf, and no one will want to read it. So I said, oh, it's good I talked to you. What would you recommend? She said, well, what is the thing you most want to do? And I replied, I want to help people. She said, then it's really simple. You should do a self-help book. She said, they are the easiest books to write, and they have the widest readership. Everyone wants to learn how to lose weight. Everyone wants to learn how to be a better person. And those self-help books sell really well. Your self-help books on this topic would be a very good one. And she herself had written a whole series of books called Chicken Soup for Breast Cancer, Chicken Soup for Major Injuries. So she had a really good self-help book concept. And that was the reason I started writing a self-help book. So over the years, what changed is actually the ordering of my thinking about the self-help book. And probably the biggest change was to put the psychological part first, because I decided that top-down was actually not a bad way to go through the body systems, and that the psychology piece actually was the umbrella over everything, that people needed to understand the psychological impact of what had happened to them. And 50% of people who have one of these acute neurological events are depressed. 50% have anxiety, and many people have both. And many people don't realize that this is happening to them. For example, I had PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is an example of anxiety. And I knew I was anxious. I was much more abrupt with people than I had been before. People quickly made me emotional which I'm not normally. And because of that, I realized there was something wrong with my behavior. And I started seeing a therapist. And the first day the therapist said, you are very anxious and we need to get to the bottom of that and to help you repair it. So that was probably the biggest change. 
The second biggest change was that I realized the literature in this area on rehabilitation and recovery after one of these injuries, which I called acute neurologic injuries, because every one of them is acute in the sense that one minute you're fine, and the next minute your neurologic system is gone crazy. And we never think about our nerve system, but the reality is that if you don't have a good functioning nerve system, almost nothing else works. So that became really a theme for me was to try to find out what was the best way to restore and improve the neurologic system. And I use that in every chapter to set up the problem of here's what's wrong with your head, here's what's wrong with your lungs, etc. And then find in the literature what were the best treatments for that. And that's when I discovered that there weren't good treatments. As a cardiologist, the clinical trials we have for heart disease have 20,000 or 30,000 people in them. And we can tell a 3% difference in survival after a heart attack. And the largest trial that I ran across in this field was about 2,000 patients. And the vast majority of them were 500 or fewer, which meant that it was very difficult for them to have a significant difference and to show a meaningful clinical improvement. So I really began to look for particular kinds of studies where they asked a very straightforward, simple question that they were able to answer with a significant result. And building on those, I then addressed more complicated questions that, that arose. And these would be things like, how soon should you begin rehabilitation after your injury? Should you wait until you're stronger? Should you start immediately? Can you damage or hurt yourself by starting too soon? And those kind of questions really did not have clear answers. So I talked to a lot of people, got a lot of opinions. And a lot of what's in the book is what I would call uh, wisdom from people who take care of patients without it being experimentally or in a randomized clinical trial proven. And you can imagine how significant that is because we're going through the COVID situation right now and people are acutely aware of, did this vaccine have a clinical trial that showed everything was uh, hunky-dory, that the trial was going to be successful and had a 90-something percent uh, protection from the virus and had very few side effects. And it's really the side effects that are the biggest problem from drugs and other therapies. And you don't see the rare side effects unless you have 20,000 people. The good news is now that the vaccination people had 30,000 or more people in their clinical trials. So we can feel very confident that those make a significant difference. Hey guys, I just wanted to step in here real quick to tell you about a continuing education course on spasticity that I'm doing. It's live virtually November 17th from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. And that's Eastern time zone in the U.S. You can sign up for it by finding your way over to the fine folks at MotivationsCEU, MotivationsCEU.com. There's no spaces in there. Once you get on the website, find the search window and just type Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E. If you search Levine, four courses will come up. One is on spasticity, and that's the one November 17th from 8 to 10 p.m. Then there's a three-part series that I'm doing on stroke recovery, and it'll have the dates for those as well. All these courses are done live initially, but if you can't make it, you can sign up for any of these courses and watch them whenever you want. The one on spasticity in November, I'll be talking about the same kinds of stuff that I talked about on the spasticity episode on this podcast, but there's going to be images and videos 
videos and it's going to be geared a little bit more towards clinicians so there'll be a little bit more complexity a little bit more depth and a little bit more nomenclature there'll also be some hands-on stuff as much as you can do hands-on stuff virtually and if you get to the live presentations there'll be plenty of time to ask questions but hey it's going to be fun and i hope to see you there motivationceu.com thanks Isn't it interesting the way COVID gave us, like as a society, or maybe even as a worldwide society, it was like a big grand experiment we were all in. And I was in clinical research for 20 years. I know the nuts and bolts of that. People don't really understand how clunky research is and how many times it takes to get right and how one lab will learn from another lab and launch off of that. COVID showed us all of that. And it's a big experiment for all of us. And it's an experiment we're all in. I just think we've all learned from, from the whole COVID experience. Yes, it's been very illuminating and shows how there can be conflicts between individual perceptions and the group. And certainly, I think it could have been handled better, but teaches us how important it is to have our ducks in a row when it comes to clinical practice. Mm -hmm. So you were, after your um, spinal cord injury, you were clinically depressed and you had post-traumatic stress disorder? Or- no, just just um, PTSD. I wasn't depressed. I was very determined. And I think that determination and resilience prevented me from being depressed, although I did grieve losing my abilities. But I really was anxious. I felt with some regularity uh, that I was about to experience something potentially harmful, that someone might do something to me, like give me the wrong medication, or when they were suctioning me, push too hard and hurt me in the trachea, or the intravenous line that was going in would uh, damage the vein and my arm would swell up. So I was anxious about all those procedures and possibilities that occurred because I had no control over them. I couldn't say, you're hurting me, or are you sure that's the right medication? I had a little board that you could nod when somebody put their finger on the right letter, but that was frustrating beyond belief and very slow. So you, because you were on the vent, you weren't able to speak. Correct. No speaking. Just nodding your head when somebody touched a letter. Some of them look like emojis. You could sort of nod about, I have, I have pain here. And then they would show you the pictures of where the pain might be, what body part. Because I couldn't feel anything from my shoulder down. I had no sensation. And it was difficult for me to speak because my lungs didn't inflate very well. And so even if I could have spoken, it would have been garbled. You were getting treated at the same place that you were the CEO and the senior vice president for health sciences. Um, when the people treating you walked into the room, some of them may not have known you, but certainly they had gotten the memo that you were who you were. I wonder if you thought that that may have helped your treatment or you may have in- intimidated them. So it may have kept them from doing better for you. What was your sense that that dynamic did to your treatment? 
So I'd like to believe that in response to your first part, did they give me special treatment because of who I was? One of our values is that everyone is special and deserves the same level of care. So our hospital doesn't have a VIP wing or VIP suites. We do try to get people into the hospital based on how sick they are. And certainly I was sick enough to get into the intensive care unit. And I would say throughout my treatment, people were very nice to me, but I think that's typical of most of the patients we take care of. Intimidation, though, certainly that could be a factor. I think some people were definitely intimidated by me. I don't think I'm an intimidating person, but enough people have told me that it's intimidating, that I'm sure that's true. And I hope that they got over that during the course of the hospitalization, which many of them did. And I had people in rehabilitation, for example, call me Brad rather than Dr. Burke, because it's a lot easier to comment that Brad's doing something wrong than Dr. Burke is doing something wrong in this rehabilitation exercise. Hmm. The work of the Neuro Restitution Institute, which that Neuro Restitution, just that word I love. Um, it's actually, Peter, Neuro Restoration. I'm sorry. I, I've okay. read that 40 times today and I, I did just realized that. It's okay. Neuro Restoration. Neuro Restoration. The work that's being done there. Um, does it expand to every neuropathology? It could. So our restoration is restoration of function, not restoration of the tissue. So for example, if you're talking about stem cells, the idea of a stem cell is that they can essentially regrow the tissue. And that can be very important. If somebody had a an amputation, you could regrow the amputation perhaps. If somebody had bladder cancer and had to have a, their bladder taken out, you could regenerate a bladder. What we're talking about is taking what you currently have and training it to, to have what's called neuroplasticity, to change its ability to do one function into another function. And one of the examples I use is blind people reading Braille. They're using their sense of touch to communicate and to receive information. And they get very good at reading Braille after they practice, just like me. I was right-handed when I began, and my left side's stronger, so now I'm left-handed. So a lot more of my brain's activity goes into my left hand and arm now than it used to. And we can actually measure that using imaging techniques to see what parts of the brain are be becoming active during a particular uh, functional activity. And, the, and a really good example of how this changes is if you have a stroke on the right side of your brain, you would think that the cells on the right side of the brain would be much more active than the cells on the left side, which is normal. But in fact, the normal side has more activity. It makes corrections and changes the composition of its cells twice as much as the injured side in an effort to compensate. We don't know how to take advantage of that yet, but we do know that that's one of the body's natural responses. So restoration is about helping people get their function back. And so one of the things that I've recommended we focus on is improving upper limb, upper extremity function more than lower extremity function. There's only so much time in the day and people have only so much energy. And being able to use your hands turns out to be much more important than being able to use your legs. And while people want to walk as their major desire, it turns out that 
people who have damage to their arms and hands are much, much more limited. And so walking is not the end game for people who have troubles with their upper arms, or if you've had a stroke for for communicating. It's incredibly socially isolating and very depressing if you can't communicate with people. Either you can't speak or you can't understand what people are telling you or both. That is really a severe uh, functional deficit. That's a major disability compared to not being able to walk, but being able to talk and eat and do everything else. Much better situation for people who can talk than people who can't. And the part of the motor homunculus for the arm and hand and for the mouth, those are the two biggest areas. The The leg gets a little small strip between the hemispheres. Yeah, I agree with you. Most of our clinical research has been in the upper extremity. I saw on the splash page of the Neuro Restoration Institutes that you are in a recumbent bike. Yes. Do you still think you're recovering? Yes, I definitely do. So the recumbent bike is a very unusual outcome for a spinal cord injury. It happened that my injury was a lot caused by the fact that I bled a lot into my spinal cord and the bleeding caused pressure to build up. And the part of my spinal cord that died first was the innermost part because it's harder for the blood flow to get to the bottom because there's all this pressure squeezing it. And so the central part of your cord is where the sensation goes. And so I was very fortunate that a lot of my motor ability, my muscles, were still intact after my injury, but the central part and my sensation was damaged. So I can't tell where my feet are. I can't stand on my tiptoes. I can't uh, tell if somebody touches me that they're touching me. So it's that loss of sensation that is my dominant problem. And I've been able, this recumbent bike, when I pedal, I can actually see my feet turning in the pedals. So it's a big advantage because I can make sure I'm pedaling properly visually because I can see them. Mm. And I actually can walk using, it's called a platform walker, which is just an elevated regular walker because I look down at my feet while I'm walking. And so I've made a lot of progress over the years in walking. And actually this past year, I've been able to stand on my own facing the mirror. And that standing has improved a lot of my body functions. And so man was meant to walk and to stand on two feet. And I do think that there's a lot of merit to doing that because it reactivates pathways that exist in your spinal cord that aren't dependent on information coming from your brain. And I think we're going to see in the future some devices that take advantage of that capacity of the spinal cord to respond without information from the brain. Is yours an incomplete injury? Yes, it's incomplete. By definition, uh, incomplete injury is defined by your uh, ability to sense around your anus. And that's because that is the farthest down that the nerves go. And so if you have preserved nerves around your anus, that means that there's some alive. 
and that causes incomplete. And incomplete people have a much better prognosis than complete. And I think that a lot of my ongoing recovery is because of that. And I don't know that this is true, but I think it's the case that if you exercise quite a bit and strengthen your muscles, that the nerves will try to regrow around those muscles. And that, in fact, the muscles that have the best innervation are the ones that grow. So I have really big deltoids because they're pretty well innervated. But my biceps, which is just a little bit farther down in my arm, is tiny. So my deltoids can lift almost 50% of what they could before my injury. And my right arm, which is the weakest, it can only lift 5% of what it could. And so I think people who are incomplete, they're the ones that are the hardest to predict what recovery they'll make. It's the same thing with strokes. Not every stroke is the same. And so some people with almost the same stroke on a CT scan may have a couple nerves intact that they're able to use to compensate. And so it's very difficult to predict exactly where an individual is going to end up. Our lab did a couple of spinal cord injury studies, and we used the STEM Master, which was the e-STEM bicycling. Mm-hmm. And the, the STEM would activate the quads and the hams and the glutes, similar to the one that Christopher Reeve used. Mm-hmm. Our thinking was that if we could somehow allow for the brain, which was not injured, to hypertrophy in some area, we might get better recovery out of the more distal uh, movement. And we got some Asia changes. But what what's the last thing that you've seen that you may have recovered a little bit? So I can feel the balls in my feet now from having practiced all this standing and from uh, taking advantage of multiple exercises that make me use my feet, use my legs in different ways. And so that stimulates, I think, my brain, and it also stimulates my spinal cord. And I think the problem with functional electrical stimulation, where you put an electrode on the muscle, and the muscle moves and makes the leg move, that's not nearly as effective as putting an electrode in the spinal cord itself and stimulating the nerves that go to the leg. So the problem, those nerves still exist, uh, but they are no longer connected to your brain. And in spinal cord injury, most of the nerves die at the site of the injury, but there are below that some nerves that don't connect to the brain that function by themselves. They're called pattern generators. And those nerves, I think we can reactivate and they can generate that functional electrical movement all on their own. And if we have an electrode that not only can stimulate, but also can get information back, then your brain can use that information to help it perform tasks. So I think we're going to see some very novel changes occurring in spinal cord injury, perhaps in stroke and traumatic brain injury, where we take advantage of that for those pattern generators and enable people to make movements, even though the nerves that originally innervated them aren't there. There's classic experiments of spinalizing. For some reason, they were all in cats. They would cut the spinal cord above the hind limbs. And then if you took the hind limbs and put them on a little kitty treadmill without the cat even knowing it, they would do a central pattern generator that you're talking about, I think. Uh, They would do this stereotypic movement with their feet. They'd 
step and they wouldn't even know it. It's kind of like the thing that um, infants have where you, before they're able to walk and you have them do stepping patterns and they'll do that stereotypical stepping pattern. Exactly. Yep. The central pattern generators were thought not to exist very much in mature uh, men and women, but in fact, I think they do exist and we can take advantage of them. And certainly cats, rats, mice, many kinds of animals uh, have those patterns and in a matter of a week or so, we'll start to regenerate those movements and take advantage of those movements. So it turns out, I think, unbeknownst for many years, we have access to the same central pattern generators. And you think at some point, maybe the central pattern generator, which is not um, activated by the brain, can be taken over by the brain? I think that the electrode that we put into the spinal cord Mm -hmm. can provide a stimulus to turn it on. And there are some nerves that can come back from there to the brain that will provide the brain with enough input to become voluntary. And in some studies, even they've been able to turn the electrode off and the combination of what they've done to the central pattern generators, plus the signals that are coming from the leg, enable the brain to now do it even without stimulation. So that's the hope, I think, for the future, is we can train the brain and take advantage of these central pattern generators. And that combination will enable people to move, not perfectly, but sufficiently to have functional abilities. That's my hope. And I think there will be devices like that. Part of the reason I think that I'm very hopeful is as a cardiologist, over the last 30 years, some of the greatest advances have been in devices. So we used to give people all kinds of medications for something called angina, which was chest pain when people didn't have enough blood flow to the heart. And now we first had balloon that we would insert on a catheter to um, dilate the vessel. Then we had stents that would go in and keep the vessel open. And we have devices now for defibrillators that will shock the heart back into normal function, devices that help people with heart failure improve their heart function. And so those devices are remarkably successful because they have no side effects usually. If there's a problem, you just turn them off and they don't need to be, quote, taken every day like a pill. So compliance is 100%. So I think devices offer a really improved approach to neurologic problems. And up until now, we really haven't had many devices in the field. But I think going forward, we will. I wonder if you'd let me switch gears a little bit. I'm incredibly, I'm incredibly interested in how this experience, this huge experience in your life has changed the way you interact with patients and you talk to patients. And in school, we try to have the lived experience, but we can't. On the rehab side, we roll around in a wheelchair for a day to try to replicate and to fail to replicate the experience of having to use a wheelchair. We wear a bariatric suit for a day and we might feel the weight of the suit, but not the weight of the people passing judgment or tie up an arm to replicate hemiparesis or wear a glove to understand sensation loss. And all of these fail because they're not the pathology. It's almost like slum tourism. 
The experience of living in a slum for many people who do is tied to the fact that they know they'll never escape. If you could go back and whisper in your ear something that you know now that you didn't before as a clinician, what would you tell yourself to better communicate and be more empathetic with your patients? Well, that's a good question. I'll answer it in two ways. So first, when I returned as the CEO a year after my injury, I started a new program called Patient Family Centered Care. And there are a number of hospitals throughout the country that had started similar programs. So I can't take any credit for developing the program other than reading about it and saying, we should do this at my hospital. So we did. And it's focused really on two things, on attention and compassion. So two things I would whisper are, you need to be more attentive and you need to be more compassionate. I think people in the medical field have no problems understanding compassion because that's why they go into medicine. They're innately compassionate and want to help. I think one of the key things, though, that I would have whispered is use it. Don't cover it up. Don't feel that compassion will cloud your rational thinking, that you won't arrive at the best form of therapy or the best recommendation just because you're compassionate. In fact, compassion enables you to really understand the patient better and help make a treatment pathway and treatment goals that will be effective. The harder one, though, is attentiveness. And attentiveness is being aware of what the patient wants, not what you want. Now, sometimes patients want things that aren't logical, but a lot of times we impose on the patients our logic that may not be the best for them. An example would be getting a chest x-ray early in the morning uh, on someone who had a family problem the night before, and they need some time with their family to come together. And if we prevent that, because we need that chest x-ray now, we may disrupt the very important interpersonal relationship between the patient and their family, because these people have come sometimes from a distance, to get together and to have a good discussion about what they're going to do. And that's much more important to that patient than getting a chest x-ray is. And chest x-rays, when I had them, they were exhausting to get propped up and to have a cold metal container put against my back. And I would have not been able to have a very good conversation after that chest x-ray. So the the clinical judgment is, do we really need that x-ray at 8 a.m. or will it still be accurate at 10 a.m.? I would say nine times out of 10, you could wait the two hours. And so that's attentiveness, is being attuned to what's really going to be important for the patient at that moment. And they call that mindfulness as well, which is when you're uh, in a moment and paying attention to the moment in a non-judgmental way. And I think mindfulness is part of attentiveness. And so we've put a lot of energy at our whole system into making people attentive. And I think the staff, once they get good at that, also find that it's much more reassuring and better for the patients, but better for them too, because they're not struggling with the patient to make the patient do something they don't want to do at that moment. And the patient really appreciates it when you're attentive and let them perform what they most need to do. So it's a win-win situation. I can hear all my rehab friends saying, but what about productivity? 
And I know that exists across uh, healthcare places, but in, in some rehab facilities, it's just quite overwhelming. And, and everyone in rehab laments that they can't just slow down a little bit just to talk to people and figure out what's really going on with them, that connection. The connection that most people in rehab used to enjoy, and that's what they wanted to have. They more contact time than just about anybody rehab professionals do, and it's slowly getting sucked away. So there's a little bit of push me, pull you in that that dynamic. Indeed. Yeah. Your book, it's called Getting Your Brain and, and Body Back, Everything You Need to Know After Spinal Cord Injury, Stroke, or Traumatic Brain Injury. And we can niggle around the, the edges of those three pathologies. Um, but, you know, after the resolution of the penumbra in a stroke, after um, uh, the injury to the spinal cord has gone down and the swelling's gone down, th- there's some functional gains. And that usually happens during the subacute phase. I wonder if there's something encouraging that you can help for the populations of progressive diseases, ALS, amyotropic lateral sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis. Is the dynamic different when it's progressive and in ALS, you know, highly progressive in a short, very short order? Mm, that's that's a tough one. The best response I can give is that research is very active in those areas. Over the last 10 years, for multiple sclerosis, we've seen some remarkable new drugs. And I know many people now who have multiple sclerosis who are leading fairly normal lives because we've discovered some of the underlying pathologic mechanisms and we're able to treat those with new drugs. And so I think that hope is a medicine. And what I would tell people is you should hope. And I can use multiple sclerosis as an example where people are doing much, much better than they ever used to. But I think the the tincture of hope is probably the best medicine there is. And we can still be very realistic about what's likely to occur, but we are also seeing very rapid changes in treatments. You know, just uh, one of the diseases um, that is uh, now dramatically changing is um, uh, spinal cerebellar atrophy. This was a disease that happens to kids that used to be uniformly fatal before the age of 10. And there's a drug now available that uh, completely halts the progression of disease almost. So that's an example of a disease that's had a remarkable change in it over the last 10 years. And there are drugs being developed, for example, for Friedrich's ataxia, uh, which is another one of these very progressive diseases where most people die in their 20s and most their 30s. So I think hope is is a real thing, and people should should be given that hope. We shouldn't say there's no hope. Just resign yourself to this. That's that's not I think true, and I think it's also a real disservice to people to give to take away their hope. Yeah, we just did two episodes on cerebellar ataxia, mm-hmm. and we had a a guy who was an ICU nurse. And had a stroke in a cerebellum and had a taxia join us. And he said he, he really just hunkered down, really didn't leave his house for the first couple of years. And then he decided he couldn't do it anymore. And 
ever since then he started pushing at every boundary and he's now back at school and he's going into a profession that has to do with nursing and so yeah maybe maybe hope is probably the best thing to to think about you can donate to nuggets and neurons there's a qr code on the podbean website you can just scan it and also there's a venmo that you can do it it's at neurons is our address or whatever you call it and, and thank you to all of you who have been donating we yes, appreciate it it's very nice and remember 20% goes to the brain injury association of america brain injury association of america <laughs> Um, 20% of it goes to that if you if you donate a little bit and don't have to be a lot be a little bit in some ways it's like just showing in a, a little bit of appreciation if you're getting something out of it yeah and, and don't forget to join the Facebook group that'll be helpful too mm-hmm. and yeah so yeah good yeah it's good stuff We had two scientists on, Barbara Zupan and Don Newman, and they do a lot of work with something called alexithymia after brain injury. It's an inability to recognize emotion in yourself. And when you can't know what you're feeling, it becomes very difficult to know what your loved ones are feeling. And it starts to set up all these different kinds of conflicts. And I'm curious about with your situation, one of the reasons that they can't feel what they're feeling is that sometimes they don't recognize the normal physiological responses that if they were happy and their their heart rate would get higher, that they would normally feel that, but they just don't recognize it as any anything. And spinal cord injury well, below the level of the, the break or incomplete break they can't feel blood pressure changes and heart rate changes and diaphoresis or all the other physiological things that you can have that might lead to not realizing what's emotionally happening to themselves. Has that been your experience? Yes and no. The yes is there certainly are a number of situations where your body is doing things that you don't appreciate. So in spinal cord injury, the most prevalent one is autonomic dysreflexia, which is when this uh, system, the autonomic nervous system that regulates the functions that I call automatic because you don't think about them. So who's in charge of controlling your blood pressure? As you talked about, your heart rate, your sweating, your bowel movement, your as you push the stool down your bowels, your bladder as it gets bigger, all of those things no longer are perceived by people with spinal cord injury that's above the sixth thoracic vertebrae, sort of at the level of your nipples. And so that can actually be very dangerous. People can have blood pressures go to 250 over 150. And, you know, they'll turn bright red in the face and uh, people can actually have a stroke from that. And so that particular kind of lack of control results in situations that people aren't aware of. So I think that there's a physical part and certainly there's an emotional part. So people who are depressed and anxious have a difficult time perceiving their own responses and depressed people are not very prone to feel happy and they don't have a lot of stimuli that they can interpret as 
making them happy, nor can they recognize in people that they're with a lot of emotions. So I think the two parts of it are in some rare situations like traumatic brain injury, you actually lose some of the emotional centers in your brain and you can't experience those, just like some people can't experience pain. But much more common is the psychological state or condition that you end up in. It makes it difficult for you to interpret what's going on in your own body, and even more so with the people around you. And we used to talk back, you know, in the early 1900s about catatonia, this state where people were completely non-functional. They couldn't do anything. They would look like they were hypnotized to not move. And a lot of that is psychological, not physical. And so I think that when you have a family member who's not responding very emotionally and not very appropriately, probably the first thing I would do is find out what their underlying psychological state is and seeing if we can help them get out of that um, unemotional state where people, I think, sometimes hide because they don't want to face how difficult their situation is and they lose hope. They lose um, desires and they, I wouldn't say they have a death wish, but they certainly aren't willing to make the effort to participate in their life, which is a sad place to be. I'm writing another book. I don't know if you're writing another book, but what I always do from any clinician I talk to, the podcast, whatever it is, is I steal ideas. And I want to ask you before I let you go uh, about the horizon, the future developments in, as you see it in neuro rehab, um, maybe in the short term and the long term. And since my book is going to be on stroke, of course, because that's all I write about, or maybe traumatic brain injury too. Can you give me an idea of what you see coming down the pike? Yes. As we touched on this briefly, but I think devices are going to be on the horizon as the area where the greatest changes are going to occur. And a lot of it, I think, comes from the internet of things that we hear about, which are smart phones, smart doorbells, smart TVs, talking to Alexa and asking her a question or to Siri. Those capabilities are going to be remarkable in the short term. So when I first started uh, trying to regain the ability to um, be an academic professional, our currency is words and language. And I couldn't write, I couldn't type. And so it was necessary for me to use speech and to learn all the commands I could to make the computer work well. And when I started back in um, 2009, the voice recognition systems weren't very good and there weren't very good commands. And it was painful to do things. Now, the devices are much better than they used to be. The cloud is being used to provide the power to compute and to understand what uh, someone's saying. And that's a dramatic change from just 12 years ago when I was first injured. So I think we're going to see an enormous improvement in the ability of devices that exist for people with no disabilities uh, to help people with disabilities and to be adapted. So that emotional uh, concern we had, we're going to end up with an emotional barometer device attached to some watch on your arm that tells you 
up, your blood pressure is going up too much, or your heart rate's going down too much. I actually have been working with a company that uses the sound of your body to understand what's going on in the body. The most obvious uh, use is an asthma. And so their device can actually recognize a cough that's an asthma cough from uh, a tickle of your throat cough or from the cough from a head cold. And now I've been helping them move into cardiology because the valves in the heart make noises and you can train their instrument to alert you when there is a potentially harmful noise coming from your valves. Or if someone's replaced your valve with an artificial valve and that artificial valve is beginning to fail, they actually can alert you and your doctor that there's a problem with that valve. So I think those types of devices are already here. They just haven't been fully adapted for people with various disabilities. Probably the one that has been the most talked about is the exoskeleton, which is this device that was developed originally for the military to enable our warfighters to climb mountains carrying large amounts of weight. And um, it turned out the military didn't end up using it very much at all, but companies have developed it now for people who can't walk. And it certainly works. It's not very practical because it takes a while to get it on and it's expensive. The expensive part will drop pretty dramatically, I think, if they catch on because then there's the economies of scale. But I think the general concept of an exoskeleton or of a bionic component is going to become one of the next things that happens. And so my right arm, which is weak, if I could encase it in a simple exoskeleton that strengthened it, it would be dramatic in terms of my ability to uh, use both hands effectively. I used to do a lot of kayaking, and my left arm strong enough to kayak, but my right arm could do about two strokes and then kaput. I can't use a regular wheelchair because my right arm is too weak to push the wheel. And now we're having electric wheelchairs. I ride my bicycle on this path, and now I see a um, electric bicycle every 20 minutes. Everyone has them. And it enables people to go faster, or it enables people who can't go very well to now go a lot farther than they could. So as batteries get better and lighter, we're going to see all kinds of devices adapted now for people to use. And I'm sure there's going to be a good electric wheelchair soon that I'll be able to handle to make a difference. So those kind of devices, I think, are going to be here in the next five years. I'd say on a longer horizon, that's where we're talking about doing functional electrical stimulation of parts of the brain and um, parts of the spinal cord or parts of your periphery. And the order that's going to happen in is the opposite. That is, first, we're going to have devices that stimulate the nerves in your arm or the nerves in your feet to make them do things because those are easy to get in and easy to get out. Next, I think we'll see devices in the spinal cord because those are pretty easy to get in. You can get into the space um, between the bone, your vertebrae, and the cord. There's a space called the epidural space, and we can put things in there and take them out. The final frontier, of course, is the brain. And the big one there is called the brain-computer interface. And 
that will truly be revolutionary when when that takes hold. Everyone's seen these 60-minute uh, segments where people who are totally paralyzed, ALS even, um, the device is placed next to their brain where they have functioning nerves, and it detects the brain activity. It is able to analyze it, interpret it, and then proceed to make the motion that the person was thinking. And so I think that's the final frontier, brain-computer interface. I think that's quite a ways off because it's it's invasive right now. You've got to go ahead and put something deep into the brain to get it to stimulate and to respond. I do think that there will be enough improvements in technology that sophisticated electrodes like the kind you would wear um, for an EEG to find out if you have epilepsy, for example, those devices will transform that field once they get good enough. So I see three steps uh, in the future to make people more and more independent. And I'm very excited that both you and I will witness those in our lifetimes. So you might be out of a job, Peter. You better watch out. Oh, no. <laughs> exoskeletons. Well, we got to teach them how to use the exoskeletons. There'll be a little balance problem, but we'll take that hit. Yep. Well, thank you, right. Dr. Burke, for spending this time with us. It's been a real pleasure, Peter. Um, I look forward to your new book. Um, I, I've decided that I'm going to give myself a little time off for good behavior. <laughs> I think you did as well. But uh, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation. And I hope your uh, listeners give you and me some feedback. Uh, so if they post things on a chat board or, or uh, in response to the podcast, I'm looking forward to reading them and uh, answering them. Great. They, there probably will be some uh, feedback, some neurofeedback. Um, yes. Good luck with everything at the Neuro Restoration Institute. It sounds like you guys are doing some good work. Thank you very much. Good luck. Same to you. All Pleasure. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.